Welcome everyone. Today's going to be a little bit different than normal. I've got a rerun episode for you, but it's a special one, one that you should definitely stick around for and one that actually deserves an introduction and an explanation. So that's what I'm doing now. In in the past few months when it was announced that Stephen Colbert was going to be leaving his show on Comedy Central and moving over to fill one of the late night host spots, uh, it, it sort of reignited a conversation about what he as a as a you know satirical political pundit has brought to you know the political landscape and, and in the media and and then also uh, sort of reignited a little bit of discussion of you know people remembering one of the biggest splashes he made was when back in 2006 he hosted the White House correspondence dinner and uh, and so as all this discussion was happen- happening and people were sort of lamenting that he will be gone and th- this character of his will be lost, I thought to myself, I should replay the show that I made at the time back in 2006 about Stephen Colbert's White House Correspondence Dinner uh, hosting. And so I had that idea and then I promptly forgot it and then it didn't come back up for a while until today. And the reason it's coming up today is because uh, at the beginning of this week, I I felt a tiny bit sick. And each day since, I felt a little bit worse and a little bit worse. And sometimes it's a cough and sometimes it's congestion and sometimes it's both. And I woke up today with a terrible headache and aches and pains and sore throat and cough and sinus congestion. I thought, I don't remember the last time I did this, if ever, but I'm going to call in sick today. This is ridiculous. Uh, my original plan was to do a, a Charlie Hebdo episode today, and I just thought, like, I cannot do that subject justice uh, hopped up on decongestants and painkillers. So I, I started looking around for a rerun to do, was reminded about the uh, Colbert Correspondence Center episode, and I thought, today's the day. So as I said, this episode is from May 2006, if you can even believe it. I only started producing Best of Left in January 2006, so I'd had you know a full four months of production experience under my belt when I made this episode. So it might be a little interesting, the uh, production value might be a little lower than you're used to, but you know, as always, it's not me and it's not the production value that's the star of the show, it's the content anyways, and, and the content in this episode, I think, uh, stands the test of time. Although I will admit that if I were to edit it freshly today, I'd probably make some different editorial choices. But be that as it may, I'm just going to play it as it was uh, when I made it at the time. So for anyone who wasn't around or wasn't really plugged into the political scene back in 2006 when this was happening and you just completely missed this, this is a story you'll definitely uh, you know, want to be caught up on. And for anyone who was around and, and was paying attention, it's always a fun thing to relive. So enjoy. The following is a selection of highlights, lowlights, and analysis brought to you by the entire spectrum of the insidious left-wing media. And now... Welcome to the Best of the Left podcast, with clips today from Rachel Maddow, Slate Magazine, Al Franken, The Young Turks, Counterspin, The Majority Report, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, and On the Media. Every month.
Sunday. We are lucky enough to get an update from our friend David Bender on some of the best weekend political chatter out of Washington. All the good juicy stuff we sometimes miss while we're enjoying our few days rest from the busy work week. David Bender is host of Air America's Politically Direct, and he joins us this morning courtesy of the good folks at People for the American Way. David Bender, oh, please tell me that you got to go to the White House Correspondents' Dinner this weekend. Did you go, Rachel? Uh, I had the stomach flu. Well, then, yes, I was there. Uh, yeah, yeah I, w- I was there. Uh, I, God, I was looking forward to you being there. I'm so sorry you weren't feeling well. David, but, you're uh, lying. I, I was. Uh, I am. Um, I'm the uh, president of that organization. In fact, uh, <laughs> I. I. Uh, I, I uh, did all of the entertainment myself. That was uh, that was me. Um, and if you don't believe that, you, uh, you probably have been uh, also not seeing in the media because this is really it was it was an amazing event. And I and and, and truth in broadcasting here, I uh, I saw it on C-SPAN. Yeah. But what I saw on C-SPAN was something that you actually never see. These events, Rachel, have been going on for ninety-two years. Wow. This organization's been around. And they have this sort of very inside-the-beltway tradition where the, the president comes out and he pokes fun at himself. And everyone laughs along, and for just one night, no partisanship, and, and the media and the press uh, and, and the president all get along. They're best of friends. And frankly, it's nauseating. <laughs> It's really, really a disgusting event, particularly when it's glossing over the fact that this press corps has been completely silent for most of this administration on, on the very issues they're now joking about. Yeah. So somebody had the brilliant idea, and actually it's the incoming president, Steve Scully of C-SPAN, um, to invite Stephen Colbert to be the uh, the entertainer this year. So the way it played out, and, and the media has been stunningly silent on this because they got skewered too. And, and anyone who doesn't know, Stephen Colbert does the Colbert Rapport on, on the television machine <laughs> uh, five nights a week on Comedy Central. And he, he does a character which is essentially Bill O'Reilly. Uh, and he sends up the pontificators and he sends up the media much in the same way The Daily Show does. But he did it in front of 2,700 White House press corps and and friends of of the administration, Karl Rove in the audience, and he sent up everyone, but it didn't pull any punches. And this was a very uncomfortable evening for the White House press corps you and think, for the president. You think it was significantly more pointed and more embarrassing than these things usually are? Never seen one like this. Wow. Never seen one like this. It, most of the, the discomfiture is, uh, you know, it, traditionally it's about whether someone has gone over the top in terms of, of were they a little bawdy or raunchy. This had nothing to do with that. This yeah, but that was like a couple of years ago when Bush was like crawling around looking for the weapons of mass destruction, right? And that was just offensive because he's so incredibly insensitive and offensive. It, yes, but do you remember what happened? The press laughed at that, which yeah. was the most offensive part. That's right. You're exactly People in the right. room looked at this film that Bush brought of him crawling around the Oval Office floor while we were people were dying, and they thought somehow that was funny and this is what i was cringing at watching c-span thinking this is we're going to have this again exact opposite and the the blogosphere is going crazy trying to to get people and their links to all this to see what actually happened because this was the first time in my memory that anyone has actually sat 10 feet away from george bush and told him the truth 
and and did it on national television. I I, I think we have a couple of clips. There's one one of uh, Colbert's lines had to do with Bush's low poll numbers. All right, this was uh, we got this one uh, cut number three, Chris. Let's hear. It. Now I know there's some polls out there saying that that this man has a 32 percent approval rating, but guys like us, we don't we don't pay attention to the polls. We know that, that polls are just a collection of statistics that reflect what people are thinking in reality. <laughs> and reality has a well-known liberal bias. <laughs> you know, that was going to be the subtitle of my book if I ever wrote one. It was going to be The Facts Have a Liberal Bias. I guess I can't use that now. Uh, oh, no, yeah, sure you can. And you can get Stephen Colbert to write a... <laughs> write a blurb about how I stole it. No, I got it first. It works better now. Um, he, he, Colbert said something about Bush sticking to his principles. He said that when the president decides something on Monday, and remember, he's the decider, he still believes it on Wednesday no matter what happened on Tuesday. Ah. I mean, th- these were the kinds of things, and Bush tried. He had, a, he had that frozen smile that, you know, you've seen in uncomfortable moments, usually of his own making. But this time, with Laura also there, this was not a happy moment. They rushed out of that room when it was, when it was over. They were not pleased. I heard the, the way I read it described in some of the mainstream newspaper reporting was that they gave kind of a grim nod to Stephen Colbert when it was over, that there was no, like, oh! Oh, you really got me there, good buddy, kind of thing. Like no, no, none of that. No, uh, you know, the, uh, Colbert says that the president said good job and tapped him on the arm, but it, you know, I think he was looking, probing for weak spots. <laughs> <laughs> it was not. It was not a, a pleasant moment. Uh, there's, there was another great line, actually. One, of, my favorite line of, of the night was um, was a clip about uh, the, uh, that we have about the White House shakeup. Oh yeah, here we go. Everybody asked for personnel changes, so. The White House has personnel changes. And then you write, oh, they're just rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. First of all, that is a terrible metaphor. This administration is not sinking. This administration is soaring. If anything, they are rearranging the deck chairs on the Hindenburg. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) That is really... I love a good metaphor joke. I mean, <laughs> you don't get that often, and that was and that's perfect. I mean, I've used, I have, have dragged that poor Titanic out of the water more times than I care to mention, and someone's finally got it right. It really is going down in flames. You know, Stephen uh, Colbert opened up his speech by saying, I feel like I'm, a, what an honor, White House Correspondents Dinner, to sit here at the same table with my hero, George W. Bush. I feel like I'm dreaming. Somebody pinch me. You know what? I'm a pretty sound sleeper. That may not be enough. Somebody shoot me in the face. Is he really not here tonight? Oh, that's the one guy who maybe could have helped. It, it, it was, it, and it went, it went from there. And he never, Rachel, he never broke character. This, and, and see, this is what was interesting because usually they'll banter back and forth, and they'll, you know, if if there's an awkward moment, and and you you got to believe it was not. Uh, you could pan the room and see people looking, nudging each other, going, "Is is is he doing this? Is this really what's going on here?" What I think is stunning. Let me let me cut to the chase here. What's stunning is that we haven't heard more about this. The the blogosphere is really all over this, and yeah. it may push it out there. People should be talking about this because this is one of those moments that I think the press corps doesn't know how to report on itself. And you know, the New York Times had a whole piece on the on the other little comic routine that Bush did with a Bush impersonator, which you know, I think that's an oxymoron. But 
but the, the truth is, this is what people should be talking about, and yeah. hopefully uh, more of these clips are now circulating, and they will. There's a, there's a website, thankyoustephencolbert.org. Oh, nice. Very Thank good. Thank you, Stephen Colbert, and people should go there and just, uh, after they've seen this, the clips are on that website. Oh, excellent. And, the, and then uh, send them a little message. Thank uh, you, stephencolbert.com. That's, you know, we... Dot we, org. The, dot org. There we go. The... Um, the clips that we got were from crooksandliars.com, which is a website that we use a lot here on the show because they, they archive uh, so much great stuff. Um, and C-SPAN uh, obviously carried it live and had the clip up on their website. There's a question as to whether or not they're going to continue to make it available and how long it's going to be up there and accessible. That'll be interesting to watch as well. But as long as this stuff is circulating in the blogosphere, it'll be uh, accessible, and I think it will catch some more attention. There's no way to get uh, no way to no way to guarantee more hits on the web than by being legitimately live out loud funny and it is and it is that and i hope everyone takes a look at it now rachel i've nominated you to do this job next year are you are you up for it uh planning on having the stomach flu again actually <laughs> but thank you david appreciate that it stomach flu. <laughs> yeah, exactly comes around every year for the white house correspondent dinner <laughs> thanks david we appreciate it Colbert Revolt. This is the daily podcast from Slate.com for Wednesday, May 3rd. I'm Andy Bowers. By now, you've probably heard about comedian Stephen Colbert's routine at the White House Correspondents' Dinner on Saturday. The conventional wisdom seems to be coalescing around the notion that Colbert went too far, throwing sharp, ironic barbs right at the unsmiling president seated a few feet away. Well, here's why Slate's TV critic thinks the conventional wisdom is wrong. The piece is called Dinner Theater, Why Stephen Colbert Didn't Bomb in D.C. It's written by Troy Patterson. So I'm sitting there watching the online video of Stephen Colbert's performance at Saturday night's White House Correspondents Association dinner. Colbert looked excellent in his tux, and he was doing his usual shtick, playing a know-it-all, know-nothing of the Bill O'Reilly school with the usual aplomb. And just as Colbert is making his segue into a pre-taped skit documenting his audition for Tony Snow's new job, which he introduced this way... I was vying for the job myself. I... I think I would have made a fabulous press secretary. I have nothing but contempt for these people. There's an audience shot capturing the face of my ex-girlfriend. She's a D.C. lawyer who loves the silliness of Monty Python, who used to read The Nation in the bath, and who I think named her new dog after Howard Dean. In other words, she ought to have been cracking up at Colbert's absurdist satire and meaningful snark. Instead, as the comedian aimed vicious blows at the president, I mostly read nervous concern in her eyes. The air in that room must have had a weird and very rare charge. The night's best reaction shots confirmed this. Here's a jiggling Justice Scalia giggling like a schoolgirl. Here's a military man not quite disciplined enough to stifle his grin at a crack, decent but not first-rate, on the Secretary of Defense. See who we got here tonight. Uh, we got General Mosley, Air Force Chief of Staff. We've got General Peter Pace, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. They still support Rumsfeld. Right, you guys aren't retired yet, right? In the immediate wake of Colbert's most brutal line... I stand by this man because he stands for things. Not only for things, he stands on things. 
Things like aircraft carriers and rubble and recently flooded city squares. The President of the United States wore on his peeved lips an expression that you usually see only in the instant before a bar fight. But half a minute later, when the topic turned to the first marriage... Obviously loves his wife, calls her his better half, and polls show America agrees. The president had regained his composure and was the picture of jolliness. Not so the trio of Washington wives the camera next cut to. Their faces showed varying degrees of disgust, and it looked like all three of them were trying to hide under their shawls. Who did they think they were getting? Mark Russell? Actually, they may not have known who they were getting. The MC was clueless enough when introducing the headliner to pronounce the final T in the Colbert Report. Ladies and gentlemen, here with a special edition of the Colbert Report, Stephen Colbert. Square. You hire a good political satirist, you get good political satire, which is necessarily dangerous. So, when the Washington Post's reliable source column speaks of the quote-unquote consensus that the routine fell flat, and New York Daily News gossip and reliable source alumnus Lloyd Grove writes that Colbert bombed badly, they are offering meaningless reportage. Pop Dadaist that he is, Colbert wasn't bombing so much as freaking his audience out for his own enjoyment. Colbert deserves to be judged on his own terms. He shouldn't have stolen one good joke from his own show. That's because you looked it up in a book. Next time, look it up in your gut. And another from Jon Stewart's Oscar intro. McClellan, of course, eager to retire. Really, really felt like he needed to spend more time with Andrew Card's children. The audition tape segment was at least 90 seconds too long, although the Colbert rapport with Helen Thomas was good enough that the two ought to be considering a sitcom. In general, though, he was brilliant, perfectly daffy and gutsy, as in the line that earned what seemed to be the crowd's biggest laugh. Colbert spoke of interviewing Jesse Jackson. I had him on the show. It was a very interesting interview, a very challenging interview. You can ask him anything, but he's going to say what he wants at the pace that he wants. It's like boxing a glacier. Um, enjoy that metaphor, by the way, because your grandchildren will have no idea what a glacier is. That was Dinner Theater, Why Stephen Colbert Didn't Bomb in D.C., written by Troy Patterson. Tell me if there's something I can do Cause lately all I'm thinking of is you So I tried to write you a love song But all the music came out wrong So I hope that you dance along I hope that you there was a lot of coverage of the president did this this routine with uh, this guy uh, uh, Steve Bridges who does an impression of the president that's uncanny. I mean, he really is great, and he does it for Leno, and he did it there, and it was a, a, it was very funny in performance, but kind of it, let's play a little thing. But this got incredible amount of play, and the president being self-deprecating with so let's play this one little. Thing from it. You got it? Yeah. Okay. I'm absolutely delighted to be here. <laughs> As is Laura. <laughs> She's hot. <laughs> Muy caliente. <laughs> okay, so big laughs. 
Uh, t- two things on that. One, one, I read in the New York Times that that was an ad lib by the president at their rehearsal beforehand added that line. Muy caliente? Yeah. That the president did. The president did. Because it was the other guy's line, obviously. Yeah, right. The president okay, well, added okay, the okay. As also, I've said about the president, he values humor. He He's the third funniest guy in a fraternity. That's That's my take on the president. That was maybe the least funny joke I've ever heard. Well, here's the thing. It's just, uh, yeah, muy ca- uh, or uh, uh, she's hot. Okay, so basically what I'm saying is that room of 2,600 people, they just love cornball humor. Uh, yeah. Okay, now, Stephen Colbert comes on, and he does one hilarious thing after, one hilarious joke after another, but the tonnage of it, it was, it was now, this is where Billy and I kind of disagree. I thought it was balls out, scathing of the president in its accumulative and that's what that's why the room didn't like it what what say you billy well i i'm getting a lot of you know i'm on the receiving end or the the root end of a lot of liberal grapevines and i'm getting a, sensing a lot of glee at about somebody sort of standing up and sticking it to the man and right. the idea that you know, <laughs> you know you know bush was shamed publicly by, by oh, oh, Stephen don't Colbert, me- who spoke truth to power that kind of stuff, and and it reminded me outside your your uh, appearance in Brattleboro, Vermont, there was like one of those guys from used to be there used to be those New Yorker cartoons where they'd walk down the street with signs said the end is near, in the long hair and mm-hmm. trousers held up with a rope, and he had a sign which said uh, satire replaces outrage in uh, in decadent society, and uh, it did make me start to think that if if the level of excitement about Stephen Colbert is kind of a thin reed for people who, uh, yeah, who not... oppose the president. I don't think the president could care less what Stephen Colbert thinks of him. That's the sort of thing we say all, every day on the show. And uh, I think he was whistling when he untied his bow tie that night. Well, I agree. First of all, I don't it. think he untied his own bow tie. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, no, here's the thing. You mean these are the separate. On, these right? are all separate issues. These are all separate issues. And this ultimately is not important at all. Uh, but I've done the White House Correspondents' Dinner, and so I have a little, you know, I'm interested in this, and I'm also a comedian, <laughs> I'm a satirist, and I admire Colbert. And what happened, and and those 2,600 people in the room are, it's just an interesting phenomenon to me, if not, if, and I'm not saying it's important. First of all, what he did was, um, I thought it was terrific. I thought it was hilarious. I'm going to just play a couple jokes from him. But but I, I guess part of the point that Brock's going to make is that the president's thing got all kinds of coverage. I saw it on Stephanopoulos. They played it all, all over the place. And no one played Colbert, who, you know, was really funny and didn't go over as well with these 2,600 people because these 2,600 people have a collective stick up their butt. Well, but you should explain who the 2,600 people are. I mean, this is the White House Correspondents Association, so these are people from newspapers. I mean, these are these are the press. These aren't... Uh, administration toadies. Uh, a lot of them are, though. I'd be, I'll tell you why. Because well, they invite their sources, who are administration toadies, a lot of their sources, and also administration people come. And uh, Congress uh, people in Congress come. So there's, but but uh, as, as Colbert himself pointed out in his routine, Joe Wilson was there. I mean, these are, you know, it's not a uniformly uh, uh, supportive uh, yes, 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 I understand. Let, let's just play a couple of Colbert uh, jokes. Let's play government, government, uh, government's least. I believe the government that governs best is the government that governs least. And by these standards, we have set up a fabulous government in Iraq. 
Okay, well, I got a good response. Yeah, a good response. See, that was another thing is is that everyone says he died and he didn't. But he started to at the end. People started to resent the tonnage, sheer tonnage. That was fairly early in the speech. But that, that's a great joke. But I think people also said on the other side that you know Bush seemed ill at ease during Colbert's speech and seemed to be sort of suffering by by being confronted with the truth. And the truth is, I I didn't see the clip of Colbert's speech, but I saw Bush during his own routine. I thought he seemed ill at ease during that. <laughs> that's, just, that's just his affect. You know, well, well, terrible material. You know, I haven't seen Colbert's thing. I haven't seen a tape of it. But I read it. Well, I mean, it's hilarious. It's hilarious. Stephen Colbert is is very funny, and and I thought but his I, thing I, was perfect. I just I, don't wouldn't over. Do the level of of uh, of uh, I'm not uh, trying to d- overdo the conspiracy theory of of it being squashed by the media, but it, it's but it's sort of like you know uh, a, there was a lot the next day, like on Fox, like he died. We got a he was terribly just wasn't funny. You got a clip of what Steve Ducey saying? Such. Let's play that. Uh, it was very uncomfortable. Uh, personally, I felt like he went over the line. Remember Today in Lloyd Grove's column, he says that Stephen Colbert bombed badly. Um, it, it was not very funny. It was really funny. Okay, let's play the, play the, uh, the, the next one I got. The greatest thing about this man is he's steady. You know where he stands. He believes the same thing Wednesday that he believed on Monday. No matter what happened Tuesday. <laughs> That's a good line. <laughs> He's just brilliant. And, and of course, the idea of Steve Ducey. I mean, Steve Ducey, I'm sure, this is a Fox. What, what's the name of that show? Fox, Fox, Fox and Friends. Fox and Friends. <laughs> okay. Uh, and, and by the way, the whole, the merger, who, who said John Stewart said the merger has been complete? With between, Tony Snow? Yeah. yeah. He loves the, uh, she's hot. Muy caliente. That's funny to Steve Ducey. I don't think that counts as a joke. Oh, I know it does. It, 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 it got a huge <laughs> it laugh. It gets a laugh. It's a joke. Yeesh. And, and, and that's, what, that's what kills me is that Steve, the, the comedy style, he wasn't funny, he said, right? Right. The, the comedy styles of, of Steve Ducey, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> he, had his, he had a show. He had a talk show. Steve Ducey, remember that? Yeah. When was that? Like about fifteen years ago. <laughs> it was. It yeah. was like a midday talk show, just like Letterman had a midday talk show. If Steve Ducey were funny, he would be on a different show than Fox and Friends. Saying Stephen Colbert isn't. It was hilarious. We don't. The joke about play the the gut. Play the gut. It's a long thing, but I just want to play it. I think he's hilarious. My name is Stephen Colbert, and tonight it is my privilege to celebrate this president. Because we're not so different, he and I. We both get it. (laughs) Guys like us, we're not some brainiacs on the nerd patrol. We're not members of the factinista. (laughs) We go straight from the gut. Right, sir? That's where the truth lies. Right down here in the gut. Do you know you have more nerve endings in your gut than you have in your head? You can look it up. Now I know some of you are going to say, I did look it up, and that's not true. (laughs) That's because you looked it up in a book. (laughs) Next time, look it up in your gut. I did. My gut tells me that's how our nervous system works. (laughs) I'm sorry, I've never... Uh, Ducey tops that all the time. Tune in Fox and Friends. Hilarious.
Hilarious show. Let's move on to the second clip here, John. Uh, I, I love this one, too, and it's perfectly uh, fitting with our egregious, egregious clip uh, theme that we have with you. Uh, Lou Dobbs is talking about the Stephen Colbert uh, performance at the White House Correspondents' Dinner, and his comments on it and the comments of the, the, the male conservative talk show host and Stephanie Miller, they're fine, and the, the, of course the male conservative talk show host is a clown, but I loved Martha Zoller. Uh, at radio talk shows, I haven't heard of, but I'm sure she hasn't heard of me either, but it, that's not the problem. The problem is what she says. So, we've edited that, that clip as well. We're going to show you Colbert's uh, piece there, and then uh, go to Zoller's comments on it, and then we'll talk about it with John in a second. The greatest thing about this man is he's steady. You know where he stands. He believes the same thing Wednesday that he believed on Monday, no matter what happened Tuesday. <laughs> Events can change. This man's beliefs never will. Do you think it's a, a reflection that the liberal still has a, uh, the, the media has a liberal bias, Martha, uh, that uh, Colbert was not more, uh, more heavily criticized, uh, say, than uh, Imus uh, years ago with uh, Bill Clinton? Well, certainly there is a liberal bias, and he is picking on George Bush, who the media doesn't like, uh, versus uh, uh, Imus, who was picking on Clinton, who the media loved, okay? And so that, you really see a little bit of a bias. What came to mind after seeing Flight 90, United 93 this weekend is 9-11 was a Tuesday. So that was an in a, uh, and I, he probably didn't even think about that, but for me, having lost friends in the World Trade Towers, that was the first thing I thought of. <laughs> so, so I want to understand this correctly. We can never make a joke that involves Tuesday again. <laughs> Tuesdays, Tuesdays now off limits. Limit. We yeah. are now not allowed. So, I mean, just think dis- of that disappointing clip. news, John, for uh, 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 for Mitch Album, who will now have to change the name of his book to Thursdays with Maury. Like, uh, I mean, it's just insane where they find, you know, they, but some talk shows and right-wing, but they find every instance possible where they can throw in 9-11 as if they're these patriotic people. And it's really, again, you know, you, I've never used the word despicable. You know, I can't imagine in my whole life until I started blogging right. and seeing what people like her actually say. And it's so off the wall. I mean, it caught me. I, I can't. Did I just hear that right? I, first thing I thought was 9/11 happened on a Tuesday. Are you freaking kidding me? That was the first thing you thought. You know what? After we ran the whole clip, or the first time I watched it uh, on CrooksandLiars.com, I, it took me a while. I actually had to like for like five seconds. I was like, "What is she talking about? What does that mean?" Tuesday. Oh. I'm like, come on! Also, You're I gotta love, be kidding me. Yeah, it's great. And By the way, from now on, this show will be taking Tuesdays off. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, it was actually another blogger who had uh, emailed me about the, you know, about the the spot, and because uh, Stephanie Miller was on, who's who's very good, and and was actually I happened to, you know, I started watching it, and then I just caught you. Yeah, of course, it's at the very end where no one really has a chance to 
tell her how you know bad shit crazy she is. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, right. That's true. I, I, I which is a pity. I, uh, there are a couple of observations I had. Just a little throw. One, you know, the one Don Imus and Stephen Colbert had very different performances. Stephen Colbert's, uh, you know, and he maybe didn't, you know, his his thing reads better than it sounded as he didn't break maybe because the, you know he talked too fast. He didn't give enough time for the jokes to settle. That might be. Imus didn't get one laugh the entire time, and I love Don Imus. But Imus, Imus went over worse than anyone ever has gone over. You could argue that Colbert didn't go over great uh, in person, although it reads brilliantly. Then, also what I love is the, uh, 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 is the, the media loved Bill Clinton. That just throwaway line, like, what, what planet was she on from 1994 to 2001? See, that's where you got to give Stephanie credit. Uh, in the whole clip, and you can see the whole clip on crooksandliars.com, at the end, Stephanie goes, are you telling me that the, the, the press didn't make fun of Bill Clinton? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm sorry, I, I, you know... Uh, 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 yeah, the, the alternate reality that people like what's her name Martha Zeller Zoller, Zoller. that Martha Zoller lives in is uh, is stunning. It's remarkable. It John, seems like you know, yeah, like Don Imus's show. That, you know, I found some articles where people were so offended. I think it was even Koki Roberts who said that like you know nobody will ever go on his show again. It was so offensive because he was just making sexually you know explicit jokes and uh, like supposedly you know from another article Imus was like sweating because people were not you know they were horrified and with Colbert since his 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 routine was really pointedly at a the president and b the press corps exactly. you know, he was attacking them so he wasn't getting the laughs that he normally would see, get see John that's the great irony of this did they talk about the liberal media bias no the press didn't laugh and hated what Colbert did because Colbert made fun of the press he he you know he's his show he he's brilliant he's taken on that persona perfectly and he's he's just brilliant when he interviews people that's you know that's where the real fun is and i don't know did you see the bill crystal clip i had up oh, we yeah. talked about that last week yeah we did absolutely yeah, i mean he really he's quickly becoming just one of the best and and you know it's very interesting too is uh, Drudge threw up an article saying he only gets a million. You know, this is how he could slam. He only gets a million viewers a night. That's damn good for Comedy Central. It's great for Comedy Central and for a show that just started. It's actually, uh, it's actually extremely good, and it's also uh, an incredibly desirable demographic too. Yeah, I mean, it's like ten times more than Tucker Carlson gets. Well, that's for damn sure. <laughs> Stephen Colbert of Comedy Central's satiric Colbert Rapport certainly shook things up at the annual White House Correspondents' Dinner on April 29th. In his trademark right-wing Bill O'Reilly-like persona, Colbert skewered George Bush and the press, ironically congratulating journalists for covering for Bush on tax cuts, WMD, and global warming, and alternately chiding them for deviant reports about secret prisons and domestic spying. At one point, Colbert offered this advice to the Beltway journalist in attendance. Let's review the rules. Here's how it works. The president makes decisions. He's the decider. The press secretary announces those decisions, and you people of the press type those decisions down. Make, announce, type. Just put them through a spell check and go home. Get to know your family again. Make love to your wife. 
write that novel you got kicking around in your head. You know, the one about the intrepid Washington reporter with the courage to stand up to the administration? You know, fiction. The performance was initially ignored by journalists. A New York Times report on the event didn't even mention Colbert. But following wide exposure on C-SPAN and various websites, they began to take notice. The consensus was that Colbert was inappropriate. He was too tough on Bush, and he just wasn't funny. The Washington Post's Richard Cohen said Colbert was a failure as a comedian and rude. Others said he went too easy on journalists at the expense of the White House, but that was clearly untrue. More likely, what bothered journalists was Colbert's departure from the shared fantasy that prevails at these events, where everyone pretends the White House and the press are on different sides. It's understandable that Beltway journalists, stung by Colbert's barbs, would pan his performance. But why should anyone take them seriously when they pretend to deliver disinterested assessments of Colbert's comedic talents? Now, speaking of uh, the correspondence dinner, listen to this. Okay, so Stephen Colbert, great guy, funny guy. Does what you're supposed to do at the correspondence dinner. You're supposed to take aim as a social critic, as a comedian. Guess what? The editor of the Washington Times, the paper, the propaganda rag run by Reverend Sun Young Moon, sent him a threatening letter today and really? said, you better have one of your assistants start your car for a while. Get out of here. I'm not kidding. Now, Stephen did not tell me that. A co-worker told me that. So That's I'm, I'm going to take the co-worker at his word. Right. And... Uh, uh, that is classic right-wing oh, Politburo nonsense. Uh, truth hurts, Sun Young Mooney, editor. I don't know the, the editor's name, but that's illegal, what he did. That's right. That is absolutely illegal. And so my advice to Stephen's co-worker was, you tell Stephen to read that on the air, and you also tell him to get litigious with this guy. Yeah. Because that guy deserves it. Litigious on his ass. Yeah. You better have an assistant start your car for a while. Classic Bush uh, never has such a cadre of failures surrounded such failure. And th it hurts them so much to hear the truth about this failure. You know what I mean? Because they've invested so much of their own failure in this failure. Like, if you ever saw the movie Shaun of the Dead, uh, you know that movie, that British film, Shaun of the Dead, about the zombies? And there's the lead guy hangs out with his best friend who's like a bigger loser than he is. And then the other roommate says, the only reason you keep enabling him and keep him around is because he's a bigger failure than you and you can feel a little bit superior. Right. That is probably what a lot of the Bush fan club is all about is, well, I'm not, you know, this guy is really incompetent, but we're going to keep supporting him, you know, in, in a very strange way. It's like standing next to someone who's uglier. But they, or it's just that they're so wrong about so much. And also Bush is such a uh, movement figurehead for cruelty and small-mindedness and lack of imagination uh, when it comes to, uh, a, 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 a kind vision of the world. Does that make sense? You, so what they have is they have a, a an unmitigated prick figurehead, right? right? Then they have a guy that's policies are cruel, but you can pretend it's politics. Right. And they are exclusionary, but you can pretend it's politics. And you can get all your nasty, misanthropic, H.L. Mencken-ish, without the wit, uh, rocks off there. So Bush means a lot to these people. So when Steve Colbert says the truth about him, but in comedy form, 
they can't abide it. And also, the, the I think the same guy just wrote a book appraising George Bush that I saw at a Virgin Megastore today. One of those ones like how a great leader did something yeah. and, and oh, how, uh, George W. Bush, the man and his fights with terrorists, liberals, and John Kerry, something I, I, like that. I bet he was actually more offended than Bush. I mean, it's like one of those things, right. like, you, you insult the person, and, like, he's more, right. I mean, it's more about him than it is about Bush. Well, it's, you know, it's to say, if Bush is, if you were to admit that Bush is the failure that he is, you must then re, you must look within. Right, exactly. And these Washington Times guys would rather be shot in the knee with a salt bullet. You know what I mean? That's why he, if it's true that he wrote that threatening letter to Stephen. Right. Which I'm sure he did. Because right. there's no reason for me not to believe that a Washington Times employee would do that. But um, if it is true that he did that, I, I really do hope someone gets litigious with that guy to threaten Stephen Colbert after he does a comedy set, which is every year people do comedy at those things. Right. Um, and say, you, you better have an intern start your car for a while. It wasn't even like the, it wasn't he, he could have even been harsher. I mean, he, he wasn't even as harsh as he could have been. Oh, no. He treated him with kid gloves. Yeah. And also he was sandbagged a little bit. This is, again, how this is my, this is my opinion, again, just watching it. What the Bush administration did, knowing that Steve Colbert is very sharp and very bright, let's have a comedian on before him doing the impression of Bush and keep him on too long yeah. so that they take all the air out of the room. Right. So that they could undercut whatever would come next. Yeah, you can't follow the, the president doing something like that. Right. So they did that deliberately, even though the respectful thing to do and, and actually the more traditional thing to do over the years is that the president goes on last. Right. But they knew Stephen was going to be good. And so they said, well, you know what? We're going to make it tough. And then the suck-up press corps and all the other wimps in the room groan at some of Stephen's accurate humor. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And those groaners only indicate what lamos they are. Like when you would tell something that's true in in the form of a joke. Oh. You know what I mean? Like this war criminal. Oh, give the war criminal a break. And then you have the Washington Times guy. I'm going to write a letter threatening you, comedian, on behalf of this war criminal. It's time to welcome our first listener contestant. Hi, welcome to Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Who's this? This is Elizabeth. Hi, Elizabeth. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from Chicago. Oh, Chicago. How are things there? Chicago is wonderful. I'm so glad to hear it. Yes. We miss it a little bit. We miss you. Oh, thank you. Elizabeth, what do you do there? I am a teacher, a high school teacher. And what do you teach in this high school? I teach English, American, and British Lit. Really? Yes. And do your, stu- do your students thrive under your tutelage? Oh, they thrive. I had one student say he's going to fail this year just so he can be with me again. Uh-oh. <laughs> That's very sweet. Elizabeth, it's great to have you. Let me introduce you to our panel this week. First, say hello to a writer for the Boston Globe, Mr. Charlie Pierce. Hello, Charlie. Hi, Elizabeth. Hi. Next. Say hello to a woman about town and the co-author of the Reliable Source column for the Washington Post, Ms. Roxanne Roberts. Hello, Roxanne. Hello, Elizabeth. And lastly, say hello to humorist and author, Mr. Tom Bodet. Hello, Tom. Hi, Elizabeth. Elizabeth, are you still making them read Billy Budd in high school English class? I have no idea what that is. Oh, oh. good. <laughs> I've never heard of it. That's progress. You've never met this, never met this Budd person. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, Elizabeth, welcome to the show. Now, you're going to play Who's Carl this time. Carl Castle is now going to read you three quotes from the week's news. If you can correctly identify or explain just two of them, you'll win our prize. Carl's voice on your home answering machine. Okay. Ready? Yes. All right. Here's your first quote. We want to pay taxes. We want to pay taxes. <laughs> that was a chant heard earlier this week at a massive rally in Chicago. Yes. One of many held across the country. They were rallies to defend the rights of whom? Illegal immigrants. Exactly right. <laughs> May 1st became the day without immigrants as all over the country shops were closed, taquerias rattled down their doors as one protester's sign read, no immigrants equals no burritos. <laughs> Think about it, America. <laughs> it's a good point he has. <laughs> The, the immigrants went out, they protested, they, they said, as you heard, that they want to become citizens, they want to pay taxes, they want to do their civic duty to support this country, and the anti-immigrant forces said, what more proof do you need that they don't share our values? <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm just trying to wonder if the day without immigrants, when they all left their jobs, had an effect. I mean, did, did, did anti-immigrants... I learned how to make my bed. Yeah, well... <laughs> well, you know, you know, it was reported that uh, around the, the country that couples were kneeling in front of their nannies and begging to sponsor their citizenship after having to take care of their own children for a day. <laughs> did you see what was inside that diaper? <laughs> Very good, Elizabeth. Now, for your next quote, it's actually a selection of quotes... They're all from a certain day three years ago. Here to start us off is Greta Van Susteren. One observer here tonight said it was like the Beatles climbed out of that plane, and that's very much what it looked like from here. Whoa, here's MSNBC's Chris Matthews. He won the war. He was an effective commander. Everybody recognizes that, I believe, except a few critics. Duck, everybody. Here comes G. Gordon Liddy. You know, he's in his flight suit. He's striding across the deck, and he's wearing his parachute harness. And it makes the best of his manly characteristic. <laughs> he, he has just won every woman's vote in the United States of America. <laughs> so those are just a few of the swooning reactions to a speech the president made on May 1st, 2003. A speech in which he declared what? He declared that we'd won. Or that the fighting was over. The famous phrase, of course, is mission accomplished. Yes. yes. Every patriotic American, I'm sure, remembers where they were on the day we won the Iraq War. The president, of and course... And with any luck, where their manly characteristic was. That's yeah, it. exactly. The president, of course, was on the aircraft carrier Abraham Lincoln in front of the banner which read, Mission Accomplished. That day has, to use a phrase, gone on to live in infamy. The latest defense of the president's premature celebration came from the first lady, who said this week, and she did say this, that all the president meant was that the troops on that aircraft carrier had accomplished their mission. <laughs> which, which, which perfectly makes sense to me. Apparently, though, we must assume that the TV cameras were turned off for the president's second speech, which was titled, The rest of you, of course, are screwed. <laughs> Liddy's just nuts. He really is. I love him. <laughs> He's just completely crackers. 
All right, Elizabeth, here's your last quote. Okay. The president makes decisions, the press secretary announces those decisions, and you people of the press type those decisions <laughs> down. Now that, that was somebody who managed to annoy the president, the press secretary, and the people of the press at the White House Correspondents' Dinner last weekend. Who was it? Was that Stephen Colbert? It was Stephen Colbert. What happens when a comedian does a routine and nobody laughs? <laughs> the, the conservatives and the press corps in attendance, for the most part, says they say that Colbert wasn't that funny, he made obvious jokes, and was rude to the president. Now, Roxanne, you were there. I was, I was going to ask I you. I know. Colbert was pretending to be a Republican, and the president was pretending to be a Democrat. <laughs> <laughs> that was hard. Really? Well, I think there's a distinction between if he was actually funny, uh, if Colbert was funny, if you, and, and sometimes something that's great fun on television, uh, particularly if you happen to agree with the person making fun of the other person they're making fun right. of, is, uh, is funny on the screen, but in the room he wasn't ha-ha funny. Whereas the president who came out with you know, a twin and sort of did this id thing, was actually very funny, and I wanted to give him credit for that. All right, Carl, how did Elizabeth do in our quiz? Uh, Elizabeth was prepared, Peter. Uh, Elizabeth, you had three correct answers, so I'll be doing the message in your home answering machine. Excellent. Congratulations. Thank you. At last weekend's White House Correspondents' Dinner, the MC was Comedy Central's Stephen Colbert. A political satirist and a media satirist in one irony-dripping package, he should have been the ideal candidate for speaking truthiness to power -iness. But Colbert had a rough night. I stand by this man because he stands for things. Not only for things, he stands on things. Things like aircraft carriers, and rubble, and recently flooded city squares. And that sends a strong message that no matter what happens to America, she will always rebound with the most powerfully staged photo ops in the world. And I'm like, ouch, to a comedian, awkward tittering is a gruesome sound. But such is the price of flouting the rules. The White House Correspondents' Dinner, like the Gridiron Show and the Salute to Congress Gala, are opportunities for the press and Washington big shots to mingle together in a social setting, rubbing shoulders but never, ever to the point of chafing. And much of Colbert's material rubbed the subject raw. The greatest thing about this man is he's steady. You know where he stands. He believes the same thing Wednesday that he believed on Monday, no matter what happened Tuesday. I believe the government that governs best is the government that governs least. And by these standards, we have set up a fabulous government in Iraq. We know that, that polls are just a collection of statistics that reflect what people are thinking in reality. And reality has a well-known liberal bias. The Washington Post gossip column grumbled that Colbert, quote, ignored the cardinal rule of Washington humor, make fun of yourself, not the other guy. 
Columnist Richard Cohen said Colbert was more than rude, he was a bully. And the first lady, it was reported, refused to shake Colbert's hand. Well, can you blame her? The correspondence dinner is essentially a roast, the unwritten rules of which permit you to tweak the guest of honor without genuinely embarrassing or insulting him. What wife wants to squeeze a ball gown on just to witness her husband's public evisceration? So, yeah, the guest of honor got more than he bargained for, and so did the media hosts. Colbert was in his faux Bill O'Reilly mode when he said, I have nothing but contempt for these people. But he wasn't necessarily joking. Again and again he bashed the Washington press corps for five years of deference and docility. And again and again, the crowd did not seem much amused. But listen, let's review the rules. Here's how it works. The president makes decisions. He's the decider. The press secretary announces those decisions, and you people of the press type those decisions down. Make, announce, type. Just put them through a spell check and go home. What is the sound of 2,700 people not applauding? From a timing and composure point of view, Colbert was clearly off his stride. How much of this was his material and how much the discomfort of the audience is impossible to measure. Either way, he was asking for discomfort by so indelicately going for blood. But the question shouldn't be, why was Stephen Colbert so rude? The question should be, why is the press gathering to toast a sitting politician in the first place, socializing with the government officials they're supposed to be covering? How can you sit there in your formal wear over Buff and Cabernet and maintain an arm's length distance from the person less than an arm's length away from you? The problem with the White House Correspondents' Dinner on Saturday was not the master of ceremonies, it was the ceremony itself. Democracy requires a vigilant press. It doesn't much need the Friars Club. And bam, just like that, the show is over. You probably didn't even see it coming. That's the, the music that I used to use to close out the show. Of course, I don't use that anymore. And to make it even more confusing, the transition music that I use now to close out the show, I used to just use as you know music between clips. And so that actually happened in this episode. You probably heard that and thought, oh, the show's over, but then it wasn't. Ah uh, boy, I'm, I, I hope that didn't throw you for too much of a loop and you made it here to the end uh, mentally and emotionally intact. But uh, I just want to finish up by sort of going through what we just heard and doing like a where are they now sort of thing because, I mean, we heard a lot of really familiar voices, I hope, but they are in completely different places than they were at the time. So we heard from Rachel Maddow years before she made it onto television. She, this is when she was on Air America Radio. We heard uh, an episode of the Slate podcast when they were just in the very early days of building what has become like a Slate podcast empire in and of itself. We heard from Al Franken when he used to have a radio show on uh, Air America Radio now, of course, he's a senator. We heard from the Young Turks before they got on YouTube. And an interesting note about that is uh, I went to the documentary screening about the Young Turks a, a few weeks ago when it came through DC and Jank and the director of the movie and you know some other people came 
you know, to DC to, to come to the screening. And so I was chatting with Jank and he told me as he's told me before, but I guess this continues to be true. You know, he likes to ask people when he meets, you know, viewers or listeners at the Young Turks, he likes to ask them how they found the show. How did you, you know, come across the Young Turks? And power ranking number one is always YouTube because they're gigantic on YouTube. They have like a billion and a half views for all their videos on, on YouTube. So you can only imagine how many people found them that way. But consistently, the second most popular way people have found the Young Turks is from Best of the Left. And so he likes to tell me that uh, whenever we're in the same place together. And so the clip we heard today was before the age of YouTube. And uh, it's hard for me to wrap my mind around how long ago that was because it's it's as if they've always been on YouTube, like they invented it when it uh, first came on the scene. Uh, continuing on, though, uh, we heard a clip from Counterspin, which reminded me that they have not changed even the tiniest bit in as long as I've been listening to them, more than 10 years I've been listening to Counterspin, I, I haven't heard a single thing change about that show, which is impressive in and of itself. Uh, the Majority Report also used to be on Air America Radio and was hosted by not only Sam Cedar, but also Jeanine Garofalo at the time. I, I, I played a clip from Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, which was an example of like one of the worst editing decisions I, I listened to that and I was like, what in the world was I thinking playing that entire clip? 80% of it wasn't even on the right topic and none of it was very good, but it was in there anyways. So I, I you know, held true to the, uh, to the way it was made originally. And then finally, I, uh, you know, I, I still listen to On the Media and we heard from Bob Garfield today talking about this. And I mean, Bob's like, he's as much a curmudgeon now as he sounded like in, in that clip. But I, I was still surprised when I, I re-listened to that clip because he was kind of he was kind of tearing down Colbert from the, from the comedy angle, and I, I thought he had a good enough sense of humor that he would have appreciated. He seemed not to though, and and was just focused as always, like a laser beam on the problem with the media, which I can appreciate. That's what his show is all about. But I, I found that interesting that he had the take he did. And I mean, I, I guess I used it even though I wasn't necessarily in agreement with his specific take on the comedy because, you know, I sort of agreed with all the rest of the people who were saying that it was funny in spite of the fact that people were uncomfortable and not laughing in the room and whatnot. But, you know, but of course, in agreement that the fact that such a thing as the White House Correspondents' Dinner exists is quintessentially what's wrong with the current state of our media. So, so he certainly drove that point home. Now, hopefully that was enjoyable for you, a suitable stand-in for, you know, a brand new episode. Uh, but my intention is to, you know, rest up, be back to normal next week. So that is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash bestofleft. 
Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used on the show, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a crying shame how we get so trained We can't see past our own sad stories And wonder what we're missing We can't see past our own sad stories And forget how to listen We can't see past our own sad stories And wonder what we're doing Stories and forget who it is we're